0: Welcome to our podcast on circumpolar people from History 111 at NKU. We'll be talking about um, Arctic sea routes, land claims, and influential events throughout the history of the Arctic, starting from the late 19th century. I'm Isaiah Isles, and my co-hosts are...
1: Uh, KT Grottenhaus.
0: Preston Hurst. All right, let's get started. So to start our podcast, we're going to go about as far back as you can um, between... The Russian eastward advancement um, under Ivan the Terrible, his nickname. And he got this nickname because of his um, harsh movement throughout the continent as he wanted to conquer as much land as possible. Um, by the early 1600s, they had come in contact with um, indigenous people known as the Chuchi in the eastern part of the continent or the area known as Siberia. And these ended up being in fierce battles between the Russians and Chuchi, which the Russians continued to lose until they started hiring outside help Outside help from a group known as the Cossacks. Um, these battles lasted for over 100 years as the Russians wanted to get as much land and people under their control as possible to pay fur taxes as well as gain more resources without the amount of labor they're willing to give. And this caused for a lot of tension throughout Siberia and a lot of battling, which ended in 1763 as Russia finally gave in to the Chukchi and allowed them to keep their land for a few hundred more years with small battles here and there. And this advancement of Russia didn't just end in the 1700s as, again, in the early 1900s, when land and sea claims of the Arctic began to run rampant between some large countries such as uh, the United States, Russia, Canada, even Denmark and Norway. Russia was again trying to claim as much land as they can before other countries saw the land as their own. Um, although in this time, the early 1900s, few people actually saw the land and sea claims as you know direct, set in stone, this is the land you own, because a lot of people under the impression that you couldn't own specific areas of land until you were colonized with people from your country or buildings you had created flags things of that nature um,
1: Yeah, because it wasn't like because at that point in time it wasn't like they had that clear statement like how the UN has clear and defined laws yeah. of maritime boundaries back then it was just kind of like a one-on-one like this is my land this is yours I can take it if I want
0: yeah yeah and actually there is uh, someone that spoke for the Canadian Senate MP Poirier, and he spoke on the idea that essentially a country could say whatever is north of what's between their most western and eastern point, whatever's north of that, they can say is theirs. Even if there's no, like you said, no defining, like written down on paper, I mean, technically speaking, if there's no other country north of you, you own that land. So I think when he said that, a lot of people kind of took a stance on, you know, do we just have a right to that land if it's north of us, or do we have to actively make the make the direct statements, go to these places, um, and plant settlements. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing about him saying that as a Canadian is obviously Canada and Russia at the time, there's very few countries that would have any of the Arctic if you're going on just what's north of you know, the western and eastern points. Yeah. Um, and then actually that would be around the same time that um, countries um, towards the southern part of the world charted um, laying claims on Antarctica which is interesting that actually Antarctica had more land and sea claims early on than the Arctic did, because Canada and Russia were so prevalent in those areas.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the first time we saw actual written accounts of you know or like declared accounts and um, councils was around the nineteen twenties. This is when Canada and Russia both took large land claims on the ices of um, the seas of ice and the islands above them, in the Arctic. This is also around the same time where Denmark and Norway started um, having claims over areas of Greenland, which eventually Denmark um, gained um, all the, the Greenland land. Although Norway had settlements as well, Denmark had more, and Denmark already had been advancing inland rather than just the coast, which is where all of Norway's settlements were at the time. Um, but it's kind of interesting the way like, especially the Greenland. I mean, people just said, I think Denmark has more lands. So we'll give the entire, you know, large landmass to Denmark, when in reality, easily, both Norway and Denmark could have had part of Greenland, which is one of the largest landmasses, you know, up in the Arctic. That's so interesting. Um, was there no
2: compromises to try and, like, split the land, or was it always just... One there side? were,
0: so that was what I was about to bring up. There were some treaties between, um, I know... There is one between Russia and the United States, which is pretty large, over an area of land. They basically agreed that um, between Washington and the eastern edge of Siberia, they would split a line down the middle of that to how, which islands on which side of that would belong to which country. Like, for instance, like Alaska and the Aleutians would belong to the U.S., but then islands off the coast of um, Yakuts, the the eastern side of Siberia would belong to Russia. So there were some treaties, Yeah, but for the most of the time, like even treaties, um, there was a treaty in the late 18, very late 1800s about who would own which parts of the Arctic, but by 1926 everyone had already laid new claims, so that was pretty much obsolete. obsolete. Uh,
2: my part of the research was after his, which is the forming the USSR around that time period, which is 1922 to 1991, and Russia had a lot of access to these trade routes, in fact, they had most of it, and they used all their trade routes as shipping lanes. And they used big ships called icebreakers, which they used in order to break the ice apart, which is why they're called icebreakers. (laughs) Uh, The USSR owned so much of the Arctic trade route that they had 40 icebreakers and 27 ongoing icebreakers, which is smaller vessels. I kind of wonder nowadays, since global warming's a thing, if they're going to need as many icebreakers, or if they're going to kind of hold back since there's going to be less ice in the water.
1: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't come across that with mine. I know that uh, when looking into China, they've been developing um, subs to have to be able to go into the Arctic for those like subarctic temperatures. But I, I haven't really thought about the glo- the global warming aspect that much. I know it's freeing up the north, the northwestern passage, but. I didn't really think that much about the technology they'd have to adapt with.
2: Yeah, I think it'd be a pretty big change, really. Yeah. And especially during this time period where they everything in the USSR was kind of more land, more power. Them having to f- totally flip the switch and change to underwater vessels or even smaller ships, I think it'd be a big change. But Russia did promise land to China, and they, they have been saying this for a while since... They're forming in 1922. They promised China that they'd give them a small section of land, but even to this day, or even in 1991 when they fell apart, there's never been any actual, like, giving of land to China.
1: Yeah.
0: Were there any other ships, like, were there any other countries trying to battle with what the icebreakers were doing in that time, or was it pretty much just USSR only in those areas?
2: Uh, There were some small places that would have it, but they weren't, as big as the icebreakers were. You can kind of see pictures online where they have really massive ships, but the Klondike, I know they they tried to have some stuff around there, but still, it's kind of hard to build a ship that massive and not have such a wide global power like the USSR did. I know they, they were having a big deal in Alaska with trading furs, which I never really understood why furs were such a big deal back then.
1: I think it was the like for just for warmth and then also status sometimes, especially with otter pelts. Um, We mentioned in class about uh, China specifically buying otter pelts for like an entire year's worth of salary for just one otter pelt, which is crazy. Yeah. So
0: (laughs) I think it's just like also, you know, different areas of the world have different pelts. So it can also be seen as a sense of like, I've been here, or I've bought things from oh, yeah. here. You know, I'm I'm better than you because I'm more cultured. I have all these dead animals on me instead of the yeah. same ones you have, which is an interesting way to think um, back then. But obviously, you know, in the north there isn't a lot of, you know, ways to be creative with what you wear and things of that nature.
2: Yeah, I know that when they were getting these otter pelts and beaver pelts, they had to go a lot into Alaska, and. Even though the USSR was known in a negative connotation, they were actually not too harsh with some of the natives around there, and the natives that they dealt with were the Inupiaq, Central Yupik, Aleutic, Sookpiak, Unakic, and Nulak, and they were they were actually they were decent to them. I wouldn't say they were great people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were the USSR, but they they had a rule where they would trade with these people and they had the rights, not to their land, but just the right to trade with them. Mm -hmm. And America actually bought the right to trade with them, thinking they bought the land to Alaska. And that's kind of how that ended up like that and how we got Alaska. But these groups, they traded on the Atlantic Trade Route and you may think, well they don't have huge icebreakers. how would they be able to do that? They used canoes and would have to go down the coastline and brave all the harsh just so that they could make some money for their families. Uh, Alaska, which was owned by Russia until 1922, until a little later, it was given up to America, which was a big change. And another big change that happened was the Arctic Council.
1: Moving on to my section of the podcast, I focused more on Russia in the modern context and the Arctic Council it is, well, was involved with and more recently has been uh, suspended from. So the Arctic Council is comprised of, of about like seven of the, um, of the Arctic states, including the United States, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Canada, Russia, and Iceland and Finland. Their entire job is basically to ensure security and cooperation in the Arctic between the states in charge. So basically just balancing out that uh, land claims and making sure that no one is going to fight each other, but obviously that doesn't really help. Uh, Also on the council is um, something that they call permanent participants, which is about six indigenous groups and organizations uh, that mainly only have, this is directly from their website, they have full consultation rights in connection with the council's negotiations and decisions. So basically the indigenous and permanent participants as they call them, don't really have that voting right, but have the consultation to the council, which in my opinion is a bit odd, uh, but that's just how it works. So the council itself is on a two year rotating uh, position starting with Canada. The current chair is Norway. Uh, The chair handles administrative tasks, including running the website. Uh, they set the tone, basically, of how the next two years of the Council will be. Norway's right now is to promote stability and constructive cooperation in the Arctic, focusing on core issues, uh, including the impacts of climate change, sustainable development, and efforts to enhance the well-being of the people living in the region. Uh, the Council also allows for observers to sit in all their meetings, and they can really only spoke when spoken to. There's about 13 of them. Some include China, France, Spain, and Poland. The Arctic Council, um, they help out with disputed territory, or at least try to start a conversation rather than just having them take land. Uh, Some of that disputed territory is the entirety of the Northwest Passage. It's a trade route uh, that's opened up because of the melting of the ice caps. Uh, That trade route being open cuts the travel from the Atlantic to the Pacific by 20 days. It's an unclaimed territory in the center, which has resources and trade openings as I said before. Uh, Those resources include coal, natural gas, and oil stored in the Arctic. As you can see that would be a very a very like valued resource especially as in the modern day it's starting to drain away. So now focusing more on Russia in the modern context. um, Coming out of the Soviet Union um, they withdrew. Boris Yeltsin was the first democratically elected Russian Federation president. He pulled them out and tried to establish more of a democratic system, but in 1999, he resigned and left the government in the hands of his prime minister, Vladimir Putin, uh, who would go on to be elected into the presidency through the present day. Uh, Putin established a guided democracy that suppresses independent media and places energy resources under state control. The Russian Federation, like its predecessors, is an aggressor. In 2014, it invaded and annexed the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine, and then in February of 2022, it launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, That just shows how aggressive Russia is, including its territories that it thinks is its own, which leads into how it views itself in the Arctic. So, focusing more on Russia and China's relations in the Arctic, um, since about 2018, uh, Russia has been signaling somewhat cooperating with China and making deals to allow China into the Arctic for development. Russia uh, Russia's allied with China for two main reasons. Uh, they both have a shared interest in trading with one another, as the United States and its allies in the past and currently have placed sanctions and restrictions upon their trade and developments. It's more of a political ally- alliance to show a more united front against the West. The investment Another reason is the investment into China's Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, specifically for the Arctic Circle. China has gone into more third-world countries and built their infrastructure like roads and buildings to further their economic presence and overall political presence in the world. Russia is attempting to get that kind of development into the Arctic, despite the challenges of things like permafrost compromising the integrity of any structure. It's more of an economic deal and unity for the economic side of the two. Uh, They've been known to call this the Arctic Silk Road that they're trying to establish. Uh, One main challenge to this relationship, however, is military presence and China's allyship with other Arctic nations. In 2018, uh, China released a statement on their goals in the Arctic and noted that they're looking to reach out to countries like Denmark and Norway and Sweden since those countries cannot compare to the presence of the United States, Russia, and Canada. Uh, That can be compromising since... China's—not China, sorry, since Russia's included in there. Russia is also hesitant to grant any ability of military presence to China, as Russia has a national interest in protecting its its land and resources in the Arctic. It has had a bit of a historic presence in the area since its monarchy, so that claim is even stronger than you could think. Um, More recently as well, uh, since Russia has been barred from the Arctic Council— It has more of a compromising situation.